When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Larry Ingrazia. He's a former journalist and editor turned author of a book called Billion Dollar Brand Club, How Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, and Other Disruptors Are Remaking What We Buy. This conversation covers the online brands that you know with billion-dollar valuations. We also talk about customer experience as a key differentiator for many of these brands. And finally, we talk about COVID-19 and how it may or may not change our shopping habits. So if you're like me and you've ever purchased something from Away Luggage or Casper Mattress or even Warby Parker, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Larry Ingrazia on this week's Punk Rock HR. Hey, Larry. How you doing? Hi, Lori. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to connect. Well, it's been a long time coming. I've been pinging you for a while to come on the podcast, and that's because your book, The Billion Dollar Brand Club, has been incredibly popular in my social circle. So it's a real honor to have you on the podcast today. And I wonder if we can get started by you telling me about your book. What's it about? Well, you know, not long ago, like probably just about everyone else in America, I began seeing a lot of new brands I'd never heard of for razor blades eyeglasses, mattresses, and bras. And, you know, I thought, what is going on? And this resonated particularly with me because I knew about Dollar Shave Club actually before it got started. I had known the guy who started it. He was an entrepreneur. He had worked in digital marketing. And I remember this was back in like 2011 when I first heard his idea to start a razor blade company that he was going to compete with Gillette. And I thought, uh, and I didn't say it to him, but I thought, that is maybe the dumbest idea I have ever heard. You know, as a young journalist, I've been a business journalist for a long time. As a young journalist, I had actually covered Gillette. And it is one of the most powerful brands, not just in the U.S., but the world. It has great products, it has great advertising, and it's maintained a 70% market share for decades. And so I thought, you know, this is really, you know, kind of a non-starter of an idea. And by the way, I don't think I was alone. I think any expert who in consumer products who heard this idea back in 2011, 2012, when the brand was launched would say, you know, kind of impossible. And yet in 2016, I was uh, driving to work and I heard on the radio that Dollar Shave Club had been bought for $1 billion by Unilever. And I thought, oh my gosh, was I wrong, you know, and not just me, but just about everybody else. And my second thought was, 
how did this happen? You know, Tom, how did what I thought was impossible become possible? You know, nobody thought that the razor business could be disrupted, but Gillette's market share fell to the low 50% range. And so I started reporting about that. And of course, as I mentioned, I knew that there were a lot of other brands that had been launched in the interim. And it just made me wonder what is going on here? You know, I was just curious about it as a business journalist who's watched this world for a long time and were surprised at the explosion of new brands. Well, Larry, one of the things that really resonates with me is that consumers are different today than they were even a decade ago. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that. How are we shopping in 2020, even before COVID and with it? Like what's different about us? Well, I think the world has changed a lot. In fact, that's a key to these brands being able to launch and be successful. It would have been hard to imagine these brands coming along 10 or 15 years ago. And it was a change in technology, which, of course, consumers embraced that made this possible. You no longer had to build an expensive factory. You could find a supplier, usually in Asia, but you could get it in other places, too, to make the product for you. You didn't need a huge television or radio advertising budget. You know, Social media would enable you to reach consumers very directly, very targeted, the ones that are most likely to buy your product for even just thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, you know, a pittance compared to the past. You didn't need retail shelf space. You know, back in 2005, 2010 even, you would have to go to a retailer and, you know, kind of on bended knee and say, will you carry my product? And they would probably say, why do I need it? You know, I have Gillette and Schick. I don't need another razor. But the internet has unlimited shelf space. So all of a sudden you can bypass the retail chain. Finally, there's been this huge revolution in logistics. You could ship directly to the customer at home quickly and cheap. So all these came together at a time when a lot of consumers of these products were ready for them. A lot of young people were, they liked to do things in different ways. They were seeing these products on their phones and they said, hey, let me try it. I'm willing. I'm not bound and connected to the products that my parents long bought. And oh, by the way, Most of these products, and I think this is the key to their success, spotted a problem and figured a way to solve that problem. I think that's the the key to success of just about any business, but it was really important for these companies. That really appealed to customers. Well, I love that point about solving a problem. And you talked a little bit about Dollar Shave Club, but I wonder what's another story about a brand that really surprised you? And what does it take to create a product in a brand that will be around for the long term and have value? Yeah, again, I think all of it is saying, hey, most of these founders, and they were young founders, spotted a problem. Often that it had to do with something they had encountered themselves. You know, for Michael Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, it was, hey, you know, kind of Razors are awfully expensive and it's inconvenient to buy them. You know, you go to a store and often you have to ask the clerk to unlock it from a glass case. You wanted to buy a mattress? Well, it's a pretty miserable experience. You go into a mattress store. First of all, they're expensive. There's this huge array of mattresses. You're confused. The salesperson stalks you around the store and then tries to upsell you to the most expensive one. You get it at home. You don't like it. You want to return it. And he says, hey, sure, you know, there's a 20% restocking fee and you have to pay for the shipping. And you find just about all of these categories, there was something about that where there was a problem. Customers were frustrated and these brands took advantage of that. And so I think the key to success and long-term success of these brands is to find something that is 
going to endear them to their customers and solve a problem that their customers have. In some cases, it might be that product seems awfully high priced. But in their cases, it might be something like fit and convenience. Third Love Bra Company, another great example, has been very successful. Most women don't like bra shopping. It's not the greatest experience. And plus, you know, it's hard to find a comfortable, stylish bra. And so the founders of that company, it was a husband and wife team, Heidi Zach and Dave Spector, said, hey, how about if we figure out a way to make a quality bra that fits better? Because we're going to get you to answer questionnaires and over time use artificial intelligence, machine learning to make sure that that fit is good for you because we're going to, you know, kind of ask you a bunch of questions about what you now wear and what you think your size is. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to send that to you and let you use the bra, try the bra for 30 days. If you don't like it, you can return it. The only cost to you is going to be shipping. Now, what's not to like about that? And that brand has done extraordinarily well. Actually, their bras cost, you know, kind of 60 to $70. That's more than Victoria's Secret, its main competitor. But people are willing to pay that if they get something that is a perceived value, kind of value for money. In some cases, value for money is it's lower price, but still a quality product. And sometimes it's higher price, but better fit. And the final thing I think is really critical to these companies is they're connecting with their consumers because they're selling a lot of their product, in some cases, most of their product online. The brand is kind of relating to you, learning what you like, what you don't like, and always trying to provide better customer service. I think that's actually one of the big keys of the success of Warby Parker, which was one of the early movers in the direct-to-consumer game. Warby Parker, if you call Warby Parker, within six seconds, somebody's going to answer the phone. And they have really smart people online who can help you through your problem. They can figure it out. They can respond quickly. And really, there's kind of, you don't like the product, return it. That's fine. We're going to figure it out. Then they're going to gather all that data and learn kind of if people don't like this particular frame or if this prescription doesn't go well with this frame, then we're going to stop selling it that way. So there's a combination of things, not one thing, but they all come together to try to please the customer and make the buying experience more interesting, more rewarding, more satisfying in ways that I think that a lot of big companies have lost. Yeah, I love that point about the customer experience. And sometimes I found with these organizations that the customer experience may be better than the product itself. Like I'm on the internet all day, every day. And then when I'm not on the internet, I'm in my car on satellite radio. And so I've participated in this economy, right? And I've purchased from a lot of these brands, whether it's luggage or mattresses or glasses. And I have found that I'm really excited about the experience. And then the product isn't necessarily what I thought it would be. So I just wonder, is a million million dollar brand, a million dollar company. Can you talk about the numbers behind that a little bit? So the name of it is a billion dollar brand, Dollar Shave Club sold for a billion dollars. And these are companies that have a valuation of a billion dollars or more. It's not that they have a billion dollars in sales or more, but it really is to evoke the potential, the potential of these companies. And I think that you make a good point. In the end, you have to have a product that is good or at least good enough given the price. Now, you know, I did a lot of research on Dollar Shave Club and the razor market in writing the book. And most people say that Gillette is a better razor technically, right? But it costs twice as much. And for a lot of people, a razor that is 90% as good and costs half as much is a great value. 
Now, is that good for everybody? No, but it is a good product. And I think the same thing that you could say, whether it's Away, Allbird Shoes, Glossier, whatever, you know, in the end, the product has to be good or good enough, or it won't be around. So, you know, getting back to one of your questions, what does it take to be long-term successful? You have to have a product that people are going to recommend to other people. I like this product. The experience is good. The price value equation is good. The convenience is great. I'm going to keep coming back to it. And if you don't have one of those things, if you aren't really solving a problem, it's going to be hard for you to be around long-term. Well, that certainly makes sense. I also wonder what COVID-19 will do to some of these brands because, you know, many of these companies in this economy are not need to have items, right? Like they're not selling me things that I need to have on a regular basis. Like Away, for example, and I have to do full disclosure, I have a relative who works at Away. They recently went through a round of layoffs because nobody's traveling right now, right? right? And sales are down. So I just wonder what are your thoughts on this economy and what COVID's going to do to it? That's a great question, Lori. And I think that there are two two thoughts. Uh, first of all, a lot of these companies are still would be categorized as startups. They're young companies. Every young consumer products company or almost young company in America right now is under stress. You know, full stop. It's hard enough to succeed when economy is growing and things are going well for people. And it's extremely difficult in a time like this, especially if you're still ramping up and you're still trying to build your business. And so I I think there is a risk because of this that some of these brands that might otherwise be successful, just like other startups, whether they're restaurants or dry cleaners or whatever, that otherwise might be successful, are going to have a hard time surviving. And I think that that is unfortunate. Now, the one thing that offsets that here is I do think that the long-term trend toward e-commerce is going to be accelerated. So right now, depending on the category, roughly 15 to 20, 25% of sales might be online. Okay, in some categories it'll be lower, some categories it'll be higher, but I think, you know, kind of 85% of sales traditionally have been done in retail stores. Now, my expectation was that in the next five years, that would steadily decline and you'd have people buying more and more online, which is good for these companies because they are experts at selling stuff online. I anticipate that that will accelerate. Now, I don't know exactly how much that will accelerate, but it will accelerate in some areas by quite a bit. For example, for the first time, a lot more people are buying groceries online. And I think that, you know, once you do it and you have a pretty good experience doing it, your likelihood of continuing doing it when things get back to some semblance of normalcy will continue. You know, you'll say, hey, that was pretty good. It saves me that trip, you know, kind of especially if it's on a Saturday or Sunday and not working hard and that's two hours. Yeah, I think Kroger is starting to pilot some stores like this in the Midwest that are online only stores. You never even go in. People just pick it for you and they substitute for you as appropriately and they communicate that all to you through the app and then you go on your merry way. So, And some people might have been, oh, that's kind of interesting. In the past, some people might, oh, that might have been interesting. I'll try it someday, but I don't know when and they don't get around to try it. Now they're like, hey, I'm going to try it. And then there are other categories where I actually think that there's another impetus. You know, even before COVID, after the book came out in late January, before things shut down, people would ask me, what areas do you think might hold a lot of potential for direct-to-consumer growth? And I said, one thing that I think is a bit untapped so far is healthcare. 
you know, healthcare is something that is really complicated. You know, you're often, you know, kind of sitting in doctor's offices. There's just a lot of inefficiencies in healthcare. And remember, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, inefficiencies, whatever they are, are potential opportunities if you are an entrepreneur. Well, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of people now who their main contact with their healthcare provider is via telephone. You know, they're talking to nurses or doctors or whatever. Tell me your symptoms. So once people become really comfortable with telemedicine is the name for it. Once people become comfortable, they're going to start embracing that. And that's going to be a more efficient and convenient way of delivery of certain types of medical care services. And so I think one of the lasting things of COVID is going to be an acceleration in some areas of the trend toward providing services and products online, if that is some of these companies can survive. Although I, I will say, I think that if they don't survive, the barriers to entry are low enough now that you know you can have startups begin to launch again in the future, greenfield as it were. Another small caveat is supply chains. A lot of these companies get products, just as many consumer product companies, even the biggest consumer product companies get their goods made in Asia. Our supply chain is going to change. Our companies going to need to diversify their sources. And I think the answer is yes, probably unequivocally yes. Some of those that we'll have to find in the U.S., is that, but that'll take a while to build up and it'll maybe hamper some of these companies. But I think that that you're right in asking, you know, kind of, is COVID going to change the world that we live in and the way that a lot of these businesses operate? Yes. Is it going to hurt some of these companies? Absolutely, as many other companies, but also it's going to present opportunities for some. I mean, look at Amazon, obviously not a startup, but if it's any indication, you know, kind of its stock price is one of the few that is up since all this began because it's an expert at delivering goods online. And I know that some of the other, you know, there's a chapter in the book on the logistics revolution, and there's a company that developed robots for warehouses called Locus Robotics. And I think they're doing very well. And they see this as huge potential because e-commerce will increase demand for the robots they make. I wonder, as you're talking about this continual pattern of disruption, like disruption is actually not as disruptive as we think it is because it happens all the time over and over again. And like, shame on us for not figuring it out, right? But this is the new normal. But what tends to happen, which I find so fascinating with these brands, is that a brand will come in and disrupt the marketplace. And then it's bought out by the prevailing brand within that category. You know, So whether it's Ben and Jerry's getting bought out by Unilever or Dollar Shave Club being purchased, right? They disrupt the market and then they're immolated by it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, Dollar Shave Club actually is an interesting case because it was bought by Unilever, which was not in the razor business. It's a rival to Gillette, which is owned by Procter & Gamble. So that was it was acquired by a bigger company, but its model hasn't changed. The risk would be if they bought it and they raised their prices and, you know, began acting like any other existing longstanding brand. Because the bottom line in all of this, from my perspective, is that competition is good. And in too many of these categories, whether it was mattresses, whether it's hearing aids, whether it's razors, is that there has been so much consolidation that the competition among the existing players is very limited. It's kind of cozy competition. They don't compete maybe on price. They tweak new little features to justify their high price. But all of a sudden, you have these newcomers come in, and 
they changed the terms of competition. They said, we're not going to compete on your grounds. We're going to compete on our own grounds. And that's, that's why many of them have been so successful. Because if they had tried to compete with Gillette on Gillette's grounds, they just they wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah. Is the ultimate goal, though, to get acquired by the prevailing big company within your category? Like, wasn't Harry bought by Wilkinson's? Is that who bought them, right? So this just seems to be the natural way this goes. Uh, by Edgewell, which is which owns by Schick. Well, it was going to be bought, but the FTC said it was going to try to block the merger. And so now Harry's is going to stay independent. So I think that, no, you raise a good question. I mean, obviously, these are entrepreneurs. They want to have successful businesses. To the extent that some of them have been financed by venture capitalists, venture capitalists want to see an exit. They want to make money on their investment. That might be an IPO. That might be a sale of a company. But I think some of them want to stay independent as well. I think Warby Parker would like to do an IPO. I think Allbirds, again, very much of an innovator. And their innovation wasn't necessarily a lowest price, but they made shoes, very comfortable shoes with all renewable products. So these companies, there might be several outcomes, but what's important, I think, is that they continue to operate in a way that tries to address the problems that their founders saw existed in the market. You know, whether they're subsumed or not, or whether kind of they become public companies, in one way or the other, that's what's important. Yeah. And I would argue that if they stop doing that, because the barriers to entry are lower than they were before, Somebody else can come in and do that. So if Dollar Shave Club started raising its prices to the level of Gillette, and if Harry's did, that would create an opening for the next entrepreneur to say, hey, you're just like the other guys. Now, that would have been really hard. Yes, I mean, it's true. I mean, that would have been really hard 10 or 15 years ago. But now it's easier because of all the trends, you know, the way that the technology has leveled the playing field and lowered the barriers of entry. And I think that that is maybe the enduring importance of the direct-to-consumer brand revolution. Well, I think there's a lot of this actually happening in the B2B space. There are these big, you know, fintech and work tech companies. And then you have these upstart companies that are really trying to make traction in the world of work through rogue adoption or lowering their price or offering a different customer experience. So I wonder if you see any parallels from B2B to B2C and any lessons that you think would be applicable in the B2B market. Yeah, I think the broad lessons, and you mentioned them, Lori. So any entrepreneur should ask herself, himself, is there something about the way this industry operates that customers don't like that frustrates customers? You know, and often you can know that from personal experience, right? And if so, what is the way to fix that? Can I make the product better in some way? By better, it might mean a lower price. Or it might mean, you know, kind of a better quality or features that are appealing to enough customers. So can I make the experience better? And they can be large categories. There also can be niche categories if you look at, you know, one of my favorite startups in direct-to-consumer brand space is in eyeglasses. So there's a company called Lensable. Really interesting. I don't know that it can be a big company, but it's interesting. So let's say that you bought a pair of really nice frames a couple of years ago, you need a new prescription and you go back to the optician and say, hey, you know, can you just give me new lenses? And they look at you like you're kind of crazy. <laughs> I really want to sell you new frames because I'm going to yeah. make money, you know, kind of by selling you that too. So Lensable says, basically, you send us the frames, send us your new prescription, we'll put in the new lenses and send it back to you. 
I mean, it's a kind of a, a brilliant idea. What's basically an entrepreneur recognizing a problem, recognizing something that frustrates people. And to me, that's a consumer example, but it's exactly the same in B2B. What is it that people in this marketplace want that they're not getting right now? And I think if you look at it in that way and try to think outside the box a little bit, interestingly, almost all the founders of these companies in my book didn't have anything to do with the business before they got into it. You know, Michael Dubin knew nothing about razors. The founders of Warby Parker were actually MBA students at the Wharton School of Business at Penn. And they just thought, you know, hey, there's got to be a better way to do this. Similarly, the founders of Third Love. It actually, you might think, well, that's a disadvantage, right? You don't know anything about the business. Well, I see it's an advantage because it helps you think outside the box. You're not constrained by conventional wisdom. You're not constrained by saying to yourself, oh, we can't do it that way because, well, it's never been done that way. Well, maybe if it's never been done that way, that's the opportunity. And I would say, again, that is just as true in B2B as B2C, that start by asking, what can I do that's not available now that is going to solve a problem that customers have? And if you start with that thinking as opposed to what I'm going to do exactly the way that it's done by somebody else, you're not going to succeed. You're much more likely to succeed if you start with, what am I going to bring to this business that nobody else does? Larry, as we wrap up this conversation, why don't you tell us what's the lasting message with your book and what do you hope readers learn? Well, I think there are kind of two things. One, dream big if you're an entrepreneur. You know, what might seem impossible to a lot of people, you have to say, I'm going to make possible. And the second thing I would say, even if you aren't an entrepreneur, there are lessons to be learned from the successes of these entrepreneurs. If you are working for any company and say to your boss, you know what? I think I've seen a problem and I think I have a way that we can address that problem or get around that problem or solve that problem. Your boss is going to love you. That's especially true now in the current environment. <laughs> so, you know, even if you're a big company, try to think like an entrepreneur to kind of address problems and fix problems. And you're going to be much more valuable to your company. And, you know, it's going to make your job a lot more enjoyable too. Love it. Love it. Well, thanks again for being a guest today, Larry. It was a real joy to learn about you and to learn about your book. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Larry Ingrazia. For more information on the book, the brands mentioned, or supporting articles that just get us all a little bit smarter about customer experience and solving problems, you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr dash 106. This week's Punk Rock HR was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Productions. I know many of you want a podcast. If you want free resources, you want to kickstart your podcasting career, head on over to emeraldcitypro.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.